Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask that if you like this podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review. And as I've been noting recently, I uh, wrote a book called History Stories for Everyone, which is available for sale on Amazon under my name, David Faith, History Stories for Everyone. There's also a link to it on my website, historystoriesformyson.com. So if you enjoy this podcast, check it out. Today, we are going to go further back than we've ever gone before to tell you the story of Confucius. The year is 497 B.C. The place is the minor Chinese province of Lu, though the use of Chinese here is anachronistic, since China did not yet exist as a unified country. This was a time when statelets made war on each other, a time of political fragmentation, of betrayal, as dozens of local potentates vied for supremacy. There was, in the service of the Duke of Lu, an official by the name of Kong Fu Tsi, who we in the West know as Confucius. He was the minister of crime for that state, but he made a name for himself first as a teacher and philosopher. He attempted to put his philosophy to action as a public official, trying to convince the feuding noble families in Lu to put aside their differences, tear down their walls, and work in harmony under the authority of the Duke of Lu, for the mutual benefit of all. He attempted to achieve this not through threats or bribes, but through diplomacy, in essence by attempting to persuade very powerful people that it was the morally right thing to do to give up some portion of their power. The remarkable thing isn't that this effort at least in the short term, failed, but that it almost succeeded. Several noble families tore down their walls, literally tore down their defensive fortifications, and were beginning to work together in a way they had not for generations. But not everybody went along. The powerful Ming family refused to tear down the walls around their city of Qing, citing fear of the nearby Qi state as their justification. Meanwhile, the Qi sought to undermine the rising power of Lu by sending the Duke of Lu a team of beautiful horses and a troop of even more beautiful dancing girls. As they may have hoped, the duke forgot all about reform and righteousness, became debauched, and failed to attend to his official duties. Confucius, seeing his dream of a unified Lu under a morally upright duke evaporate, resigned his official position, and resolved to travel throughout the surrounding states to preach his philosophy of morality, merit, and filial piety in the other courts of 
proto-China. The failed bureaucrat became a wandering philosopher, setting forth on a journey that would not only take him to many corners of the ancient world, but would more importantly carry the seeds of ideas that would someday bloom into the cultural foundation of one of the greatest civilizations in human history. But, like all remarkable people, Confucius started out like everyone else. He was born in 551 BC, just 81 years before the greatest philosopher of the Western world, Socrates, was born in Greece in 470. The two men missed being alive at the same time by just nine years, with Confucius passing in 479 BC. Even if they had been alive at the same time, there was no chance of the two ever meeting. While there would be some very limited contact between China and the Roman Empire starting perhaps 500 years or so later, the China and Europe of the 5th century BC may as well have been on separate planets. Confucius was the son of an old warrior by the name of Kong He, who died when Confucius was only three. He was descendant of the dukes of a neighboring province, Song, but this branch of the family had fallen out of power generations earlier and migrated to Lu in the time of Confucius's great-grandfather. They were minor nobility, part of the Shi class of warrior scholars that existed as a buffer between the commoners and true aristocrats. After his father's death, the family was impoverished, and Confucius took a variety of jobs as soon as he was old enough to work in order to help support the family. Whenever he wasn't working to support the family he was learning, he decided as a teenager to dedicate his life to scholarship. He rigorously studied the six arts that constituted traditional education at that time and place. Those subjects were rites, music, archery, chariotry, calligraphy, and mathematics. He was also deeply interested in history. He became convinced that an earlier period, ancient even to his perspective, roughly 1000 BC, was a golden age of unified government under the Zhao dynasty, which, at its peak, had controlled much of ancient China. Lu, where Confucius grew up, was still technically under the nominal sovereignty of Zhao in Confucius's time, but the central rule of the Zhao kings had long since given way to independent local rulers warring with each other. Confucius saw this as a tragic decline, responsible for much of the suffering he observed in his world. He became convinced that the Golden Age could be restored if only people could once again come together under a unified government organized around moral principles. He made it his mission to try to make that government a reality. He thought it was the highest duty of qualified, upright individuals to serve in government. But at first, the local rulers weren't all that interested in this young upstart's theories. In a way, his inability to obtain a significant government office in his youth may have been a blessing in disguise, since it left him time to study and, increasingly, to teach. Confucius taught about the importance of relationships to the stability of society. The relationship of the ruler to the ruled, father to son, husband to wife, older brother to younger brother, friend to friend, 
In all but the latter, there was a hierarchy built into the relationship, with the latter, e.g. the ruled, owing fealty to the former, e.g. the ruler. However, it came with reciprocal obligations. The ruler was not expected to be a tyrant or an authoritarian. The ruler was expected to exemplify virtue and model to his subjects and persuade them to follow him because they were inspired by his positive example and not through threats or bribes. The ruler was expected to listen to his advisors. A good official should be loyal to his lord, but that loyalty included providing hard counsel, even if that meant pushing back against the lord's desires in order to counsel a wiser course. As his ideas started to gain traction, the Duke of Lu took notice. Amid all of the backstabbing of the era, the idea of a cadre of skilled, loyal, incorruptible officials started to sound pretty darn good. Confucius finally got the nod in 501 BC to serve in the Duke's administration, first as the governor of a town and then as minister of crime. As noted in the intro, things did not go especially well. Confucius was, to all accounts, a good and efficient official who tried his best to bring virtue to government. But, alas, his ideals ran into the hard reality of the self-interested nobility. Never mind reuniting the ancient kingdom of Zhao as he had hoped, Confucius couldn't even unite Lu. So it was that, less than four years after obtaining office, Confucius left government service forever, and set forth on a journey to try to find another ruler who would implement his ideas. He spent the next 13 years wandering around ancient China, going from court to court, expounding his ideas about government. He received a polite reception in most of the places he went, and his fame grew as a result of this journey. People from every corner of Confucius' world had the opportunity to learn from him. However, none of the local rulers he encountered invited him to join their governments. Finally, in 484 BC, he returned home to Lu and spent the last five years of his life teaching. People from all around the ancient world, many of them who saw or heard of him from his travels throughout other regions, came to study with the now-famous master. He taught thousands of students, including between 70 and 90 true disciples, people who would go on to teach his philosophy after his death and spread it throughout the Chinese world. What were the ideas that attracted so many people to study with the master? In addition to the relationship hierarchies, as foundation of stable society discussed earlier, he also emphasized the improvement of the individual. Rather than teaching a rigid set of rules to live by, he taught his disciples to study history, to internalize their lessons, and to think critically about relating those lessons to present problems. He emphasized moral judgment over strict regulations Although he did see a place for traditional ritual, in fact, ritual was very important to him, 
as a means of focusing the mind and reminding people of correct behavior. But rather than telling people exactly what to think, he taught through allegory and illusion, forcing his students to draw their own conclusions. Asked for a single rule to live by, he formulated maybe the first recorded version of what we now call the Golden Rule, albeit stated in the negative. He said, Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. He emphasized honesty and sincerity, especially with respect to language. Truth in language, even in facial expression, to honestly say what you believe was at the foundation of any meaningful communication. Where meaning was hidden behind dishonest language, there could be no real exchange of ideas, no possibility of finding harmony. Rulers should govern through virtue, which they would inspire people to emulate, rather than through force, threats, and bribes. While Confucius did not believe all people were equal, he did believe people should be judged by their virtue and not by their lineage. He advocated an aristocracy of merit, where the son of a commoner could, through vigorous effort, discipline, and conscious morality mold himself into a superior man, and that such men should be placed in positions of power. By contrast, the child of an aristocrat who failed to apply himself was a worthless man, and should not hold power regardless of who his father was. To be clear, Confucius wasn't advocating democracy, or even a republican form of government, neither of which were known to him. But he was advocating a kind of meritocracy, where rulers were selected based on their recognized virtues. Wrapped around all these other concepts was a fundamental belief in human decency, expressed in the Confucian concept of Ren. Confucius believed that all people were possessed of an inner goodness. If they could tap that goodness, they would treat others with benevolence and kindness. However, he emphasized that while everyone possessed this moral sense, not everyone acted upon it. The definition of a Confucian gentleman was someone who always interrogated this moral sense before acting, and strove to benefit others to the greatest extent possible through their relationship in society. Confucius, while not exactly unappreciated in his own time, could never have guessed how influential his ideas would become. His ideas spread and were expounded upon by subsequent philosophers until, in 140 BC, Confucian scholarship became the central subject matter of the Chinese civil service examination. The examination system was something Confucius would have heartily approved of, whereby senior officials for the now unified Chinese state were selected on the basis of their demonstrated scholarship as measured by fairly administered exams. Although hereditary emperors persisted on a level just below that, China became the world's first, and arguably greatest, certainly its longest-lasting, experiment in meritocracy, which may be why China was, for most of history, always one of the most powerful and successful countries on the planet. 
The Chinese examination system lasted more than 2,000 years until the end of the 19th century. Unsurprisingly, given that his ideas were required reading for every ambitious Chinese person for 2,000 years, Confucius became so deeply ingrained in Chinese culture that it's impossible to talk about one without the other. While the communists initially tried to purge Confucianism, Mao Zedong in particular hated Confucianism, they couldn't do it. Eventually, they embraced it, claiming that communism had been compatible with Confucianism all along. Confucius's teachings also deeply influenced many other Asian cultures, including Japan and Korea, and over the last century has been widely studied in the West. Confucius liked to claim that he was merely a transmitter of ancient wisdom, wrapping his ideas in a patina of antiquity to disguise their revolutionary nature. Maybe he truly believed he was merely recovering the ideas of a past golden age. I don't know. But what I do know is that however much reverence he showed for tradition, ritual, and ancestors, Confucianism had at its core a truly revolutionary concept, the idea that society should be organized not around inherited privilege, but around virtue and merit, around morality. The idea that someone from the lowliest family could make something of themselves, and that leaders could and should be chosen for their wisdom and not for their pedigree. Like Confucius, we transmit that ancient wisdom to this day.